Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapters 8 and 9, or the, or the whole thing is printed for you in your bulletin. If you have a magnifying glass, you can read it there. And we won't read every word of 8 and 9, but uh, we will cover the content of it all. I want to say to you while you're turning there, I'm just, I continue to be so proud of you, 2PC. Thank you for your generosity in every way, especially in hosting the General Assembly this week. You volunteered, lots of you volunteered and welcomed our whole denomination into our building. We had uh, incredible worship. I'm thankful to the music leaders. If you, please look, if you weren't able to attend the worship services, look online at the EPC's website. It's probably on our music website too. It's powerful worship led by our people. And um, Amanda Coop arranged the whole thing and uh, our uh, custodians and uh, kitchen staff just wowed everybody. And you were so welcoming to them. Uh, we really appreciate your service to our very happy denomination. Our text this morning is Revelation chapter, chapters 8 and 9. I'll read just the first chapter, <clears throat> partially the, into the ninth. Remind you where we've been. In chapters 4 and 5, we looked at Jesus seated on the throne, ruling the world. Chapters 6 and 7, the discussion was of the plan of God. And is, is uh, John's tendency, he takes us up to heaven, then he takes us down to earth and back and forth. And now he takes us somewhere between heaven and earth. And, it, and the question is asked effectively, if Christ is on the throne and ruling and reigning and God has a plan, then how is that plan going to be brought to earth? How is it going to be worked out on earth? He has this plan of redeeming all things and conquering all of his enemies and gathering those who are bought with the blood of Christ to himself, how is that plan going to be effected? You're going to be amazed at the answer. We begin reading in verse 1 of, of Revelation chapter 8. Uh, and I am going to read in verse 1. You don't have verse 1 printed for you, but you need to know verses 1 and 2. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel." Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. Wormwood. 
A third of the waters became wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. And then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the keys to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft." And then down to verse 20 at the end of chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Every summer when I was a kid, I spent the summer with my grandfather in Jonesboro, Arkansas, just across the bridge. He owned a large uh, airplane facility, repaired airplanes, he sold airplanes, he serviced airplanes. They flew in and out on his grass strip. Uh, He also had a a working farm there. And so my fun was to get on the belt loop of my grandfather, follow him around everywhere he went and do what he did. Uh, There were, uh, at the beginning of the morning, we would uh, hook up a, a big tractor to the giant steel doors on the hangar and we would pull them open. And then, then we'd put on a, uh, hook up a smaller tractor to the airplanes and pull the ones out that were not being serviced that day to make room for the other ones coming in. There was always grass to be mowed on the grass strip. There were parts to be cleaned. There were airplanes to be painted. There were errands to be run. And then if all of that ran out, there were cows to be fed. There's only one condition for working with my grandfather. He had the same routine every morning. He got up, he shaved, had his breakfast, had his morning prayer. He walked out into the mudroom. He bent over, laced up his shoes. Then he was out the door. If I was with him lacing up my shoes, when he was lacing up his shoes, I was able to spend the rest of the day working with him. And I experienced everything he did. And then the highlight of every evening was sitting around the table telling stories of what happened that day. He was a great storyteller and loved to exaggerate. You might say the apple didn't fall far from the tree. But that was the fun of ending the day, having worked with him, participating in the stories. Now, if I decided to sleep in and not go with him, his work went on. 
I didn't really add to the quality of his work. His work was not dependent on me. The difference was that at the end of the day, I had the disappointment of having not participated in the adventures of that day. That is the work of prayer as it's described in this passage. How does the plan of God from a ruling Christ get effected on the earth? It is by the prayers of the saints praying as we did this morning, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is God's will absolutely dependent on our prayers? No. What is the difference, what is, what is the difference when we don't participate in prayer? We don't participate in his work. We're disappointed that we did not participate in that, and there will be disappointment of not participating in it at the great day. There'll be eternal disappointment if you haven't received Christ and you're sent off to that place where he says there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, but there'll also be disappointment for the saints of God who have decided to live a passive life or not to make the Lord their priority or just to think about the Lord occasionally, not to participate in his redemptive work will be Perhaps to be saved, yes, but to have your works burned up as it were by fire and have no golden crowns to cast at his feet and to say, I wish I had worked with him. Now, I don't want to browbeat you this morning into prayer. I want to inspire you into prayer. I want to woo you into prayer. I want to motivate you to prayer by the promises that are made in this text. And in between the first and second services, I've come to two points instead of three in your bulletin. This is a secret to the success of prayer and the goal of prayer. The secret to the success of prayer and the goal of prayer. The secret to the success of our prayers is found in verses 1 through 5. Uh, we didn't read verses 1 and 2. It says there was silence in heaven. I'll come to that in a moment. Then in verses 3 to 5, he outlines for us what happens when we pray, here is a, a, a very graphic revelation of what happens when you utter prayers from your heart or from your mouth. What happens to those prayers? They go to the altar, first of all. They go to the altar. Another angel came, verse 3, and stood at the altar with a golden censer. Now, do you know that the Bible says in Exodus chapter 30 and Hebrews chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 9 that the altar that was built on earth, the altar in the, in, the, in the temple of God, we studied that when we studied the book of Exodus, that altar that was crafted, that that is an imitation of the altar that truly exists in heaven. Now, if you've been affected by the same philosophical uh, dichotomy that I have, you tend to think, no, the altar that was on earth, that was physical and therefore real. And the altar in heaven, well, that's something that exists up there where you, and you can't see it and it's not real and it's not physical and it's something else. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that that little altar, as impressive as it was in the Old Testament, is an imitation of that altar which actually exists in heaven. Now, why would that be so hard to believe? If we, if, if, because remember when Jesus ascended to heaven, he ascended in his body. 
And we're told, the angel said, uh, don't stay staring and looking up into heaven. That same Jesus you saw depart, he's going to come just like that. He's going to come in a body in the future to get you. That means that somewhere in reality, Jesus as an embodied human being is. He is somewhere with scars on his hands and feet and on his forehead and in his side. He still breathes and still exists. And someday you'll touch him and he will touch you and you will hear him speak. Jesus is real. He's embodied somewhere called heaven. And he sits on a throne. Now, he's a strong man. His legs could take it, but you don't imagine that he's eternally in a squatting position and hovering in the air, do you, somewhere? He's sitting on a real chair next to a real altar. Now, what does that mean for us? That means that when you pray, your prayers come in front of a real Jesus who's sitting on that real altar, on that real, on that real throne, hears you pray. If you were here for Don Carson's uh, sermon at the General Assembly, you heard him talk about that this, this beautiful promise in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 1 that we have been seated with Christ, have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. You say, I'm sitting here. I know you are, but you're also sitting there before the vision of Christ. Well, you say, I'm not worthy of that. Well, here's another, here's more good news for you. The reason your prayers can, can come before him, not only because he as a real savior makes it possible, but also you notice another angel, verse three, stood at the altar with a golden censer. The prayers come to him and they are put in a golden censer. It's just a, it's just a bowl. And the symbol of gold works like this in the book of Revelation. It's the same for us. It's the gold standard. If something is gold, it is perfection. Jesus is, we meet with Jesus in the first chapter of Revelation. He has a gold sash around his waist. He is the perfect savior. So the only reason, or the reason our prayers come up before him, that they actually appear satisfactorily before him, is that they've, they've gone through this golden censer. Jesus, in other words, atones for them. Our prayers are never perfect. We pray along and then we get distracted and we're not always consistent and, and we don't always ask for that which is exactly according to his will and we're there are all kinds of things. We ask with wrong motives. There are all kinds of things that would disqualify our prayers. But because of the atonement, Christ makes them worthy to come in front of him. And, and the qualification for those prayers to come is reiterated, not that only that they have to be atoned for, but they come from people who are atoned for. They, these are the prayers of all the saints. A saint is not one who necessarily always acts like a saint. A saint is one who has made, been made so by the substitutionary work of Christ that we, we, we confessed in our earlier catechism. That when you say, I can't save myself, Lord Jesus, save me by your righteousness. Here are my sins. Take my sins and replace them with your righteousness. We're cleansed by the blood of Christ. We're made this way. There's our qualification for praying. 
There are all kinds of reasons you can talk yourself out of praying that you're worthy of praying, but if you've been, if you've asked Christ to be your Savior, then you're one of these people, you're one of these saints, and when you pray, however imperfectly, your prayers are atoned for, and they come up in front of Jesus. And then you might ask, now, if, if, if everything, if, if God knows everything and he, has, he, he, he knows my needs before I even ask them, if God has already decided the way things are going to occur, if God doesn't need me, then why must I pray? P.T. Forsyth, a scholar, a great scholar on prayer, asked that question, why is it necessary to pray? God doesn't need my prayers. P.T. Forsyth said, God wants our prayers. He welcomes our prayers because he wants us. Just like you, can, you, 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 you could deposit a certain amount of money or you could put a bunch of meals in the freezer and you could say to your children, just draw on that money when you want to or, or go to that, that freezer if you need a meal. Some of you young mothers are liking that idea right now. Just uh, help yourself, just go feed yourself. But no, what we really want, isn't it, is for our children to be drawn to our knee. So the Father, the Father is eager to hear from you. The Bible says He delights in your prayers because He wants you to come to His knee. Here's the, here's the secret. The Father not only loves you, He actually likes you because you're robed in the righteousness of Jesus. Now, how, how does that work? How does it work that our prayers prayed here come and appear personally before Jesus? That when Jesus hears our prayers, he looks at us and sees us and he answers our prayers because he loves us. I've really worked hard this week to find an illustration for that. This is the best I can do. The first service seemed to like it, so I'll try it out on you. It comes from the first Star Wars movie, a really fine piece of literature there. First Star Wars movie, which was an eternity ago in a galaxy far, far away. It was a long, it's an old movie. But you remember early in the movie, Luke Skywalker plunges his screwdriver into R2-D2, the little droid, and out pops who? Princess Leia. A little hologram, fuzzy Help me, Obi-Wan. Help me, Obi-Wan. That image of Princess Leah, though she was somewhere else, came and appeared vividly before Luke Skywalker. Ultimately, it was communicated to the right person or force for good. Though you can't imagine it with your spatial limitations, when you and I pray, because, here's some theology for you, Jesus is in a, an embodied state, but the second person of the Godhead, Christ, is everywhere present, and that's what explains how, that's what, that's, that explains how when you pray, 
You are, been, you, have been, you are seated before Christ and he sees you right there in front of him and he looks on you lovingly and he looks on you approvingly because you've been washed in his blood and he loves you because he has atoned for you and he has atoned for your prayers. And then this is what happened, this wonderful then in verse five. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. This is what happens with your and my prayers too. We come, we appear before him as really as we are standing and we're sitting right here. And we say, Lord Jesus, do this for your kingdom's sake. And he dispatches an angel and the angel distributes the work among these myriads of angels and his will is accomplished and the kingdom moves forward. Jesus doesn't have to do it that way. It's a little slow, frankly. But he chooses to do it that way because he extends to us, as Alexander White called it, the dignity of causality. We get to participate in his work. He dignifies us by including us in the work. And he includes us primarily in the work of prayer. Yes, in work of evangelism and living the Christian life as well. But here, what an incredible promise of power in our prayers. That Jesus clears the way in order to make those prayers acceptable. And then he conforms them to his will. And then he dispatches his angels to accomplish it. There's the secret to the success of prayer. In one word, it is grace. And the second thing we learn about this work of prayer that should woo us and motivate us to participate in the forward work of his redemption is the goal, the goal of our prayers. This is an awesome truth. The goal is mercy in a word. But you say, my goodness, I don't think, I don't see a lot of mercy here. As I read down through these, these trumpets and these woes and these punishments, these judgments. But did you hear just in the verses that we read, and we could have kept on reading, a third of the sea, a third of the living creatures, a third of the ships, a third of the rivers, a third of the stars? Whenever John uses a fraction, here's something profound. He means a fraction. He means it's partial. Seven is whole. Thousand is whole. Twelve is whole. But a fraction is a fraction. This is a description of the judgment that is occurring right now. As Jesus said, the ax is already laid at the root. He started his work of judgment. In verses 1 and 2, the ones that are not printed in your bulletin, the ones I read, he talks about the silence that continues for a half an hour. That follows on the loud praise uh, that preceded before, and it precedes the loud trumpets that are occurring here. It's just this. It's the period of time that we're in right now. It's described as a time, a limited time, a short limited time of silence, relatively short compared to eternity, but it is a time for repentance. 
Why is God not pouring out his judgment on the world as we deserve now? Why do we not see things as bad as they could possibly be now? Why do we not see everything being destroyed and burned up? Because he's merciful, allowing time, as Peter said, allowing time to repent. First four trumpets describe devastations in the earth. The earth, the sea, water, cosmos. The next two trumpets describe the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet describe ultimately the destruction of hell and its gods, its demons. And um, hell itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. The seventh trumpet is not described until chapter 11 and that's the end of time. That's the great judgment. It is the, and it's the great rest that is given to the Lord's people. What's the point of this? Why do we pray like this? Why do we, why do we pray for mercy? Because judgment has already begun and it will continue. And unless people come to Christ Unless they bow the knee to Christ, unless they submit to the Lordship of Christ, these judgments will only increase and become eternal and permanent. I want you to notice something else about the, the characteristics of this, of, this, of this judgment. Verse 6 of chapter 9. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Who are these ones? Whether the ones who are not marked, as in verse 4, they were told, that is, the saints were told, the, the angels were told, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. This is the basic point. Believers go through suffering. We suffer now. We have persecution. If we're living faithfully, we will. But those who are not in Christ and who are rebelling against him, even if their rebellion looks just like passivity and lack of care, they are the ones who are already starting to die. Though they appear to be living, they're dying. These are the ones described in, in verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is a, this is a, a these are all the Ten Commandments. And, and what kind of misery is that that, that they are experiencing. You look back at verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet. A great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers on the springs of water. The name of that star was Wormwood. Wormwood is a, just means gall or bitterness. It's an Old Testament word. And it was an Old Testament word that was applied specifically to illicit sex in Proverbs chapter 5 verse 4. And in Amos chapter 5, verse 7, it's applied to injustices done to the weak. Those are not only a stench 
to the nostrils of God. But the Bible explains that they begin to give off the aroma of death within the person. A simple point is this, when you rebel against the Lord, even if you're not, you don't think you're actively rebelling against him, and he says, if you're not for me, you're against me. You're dying from the inside out. There's pleasure in sin for a season, and you may be in that season right now, but it's coming to an end when the misery of your sin will overtake you. The misery of your pursuing your own agenda for life, the misery of your trying to make yourself worthy, the misery of your rebelling against authority, the misery of your pursuing sexuality as you define it, the misery of coveting, the misery of stealing in any fashion, the misery of profaning the name of the Lord, the misery of of, of, of ignoring the Lord's Sabbath, the misery of murder in your heart, the misery of adultery. You'll be the living dead. And God allows you to wallow in that misery for a time. Not so as to punish you, not because he gets delight in it, but he is giving you time to repent. He may be saying to you, this may be an explanation to you today. You say, I didn't know why I was so unhappy. I didn't know why I was so miserable. I didn't know why life had become so complicated for me. Now I understand. I've done this to myself. But instead of getting desperate and desperately shamed, here, turn your face to Jesus who waits for you and says, let me set you free from that. And not just set you free and and get you into a rescue plan, but I want to make you a part of my army to bring my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Grace, mercy. How do, you, how do you watch the news? Do you watch the news like I'm guilty of watching it sometimes? You hear about these bad things that are being done by, by just downright evil people at times. Low and high in our society. And here's my temptation. Let them go to hell. I don't say it out loud. But let them go to hell. Get them away from me because, of course, I am righteous. That's not a good prayer. According to this text, God, the only righteous judge, is withholding his wrath out of mercy to give people time to repent. The only one who has the right to judge, the only one who has the right to send people to hell, is withholding that wrath for a time to give time for repentance. Here is the way we must watch the news. Lord, have mercy. The only reason, Lord, I know the truth, the only reason I've been set free is because you've shown mercy to me. Show mercy to them. Show mercy to our world. Please, Lord, have mercy. And the day will come. As you give away your faith and pray for your your faith to spread here, the day will come when you will experience people receiving that mercy and the day will also come. When God can reveal to you at the great day, these are here because you prayed for mercy. You don't want to miss out on that. 
You don't want to be disappointed that you didn't live full tilt into the pursuit of Christ's kingdom so that you can celebrate fully at the great day. September 8, 1998, an elder called me. He didn't call me. He never called me unless he had something very serious to talk about. So I answered the phone, David, yes, what, is, what, what do you need? He said, I have tickets to the Cardinals game tonight. This was uh, September 8, 1998. This is when uh, Mark McGuire was was making his run at breaking Roger Maris's uh, record from 61 from uh, from uh, uh, 1961 the 61 home runs that he hit in a single season and Mark McGuire had tied him and this could be the night when he would hit 62 do you want to be a part of history David asked I said yes I want to go he said well you know we have a session meeting tonight <laughs> he said I think we need to cancel that and uh the elders were all too eager to do so because they also had tickets to the game. We all, we were all there. <laughs> the game was boring, frankly, at first, in the first few innings, and it was just taking a lot of extra pitches, a lot of foul balls and so forth. So I love peanuts. And I love baseball park peanuts. So I thought it'll be forever before Mark gets back up to, to bat. I've got time to go to the concession stand and get some peanuts. I went to the concession stand. I stood in line. I got my peanuts. I looked up at the monitor, and here Mark McGuire was making his way to the plate. I grabbed my peanuts. I start running toward the Lowe's Reserved. Just as I was heading up the steps, I hear crack. The crowd goes crazy. I'm scrambling to get up to the seat. I get up into the stadium just as Mark McGuire is rounding second base. I missed it. Took me years to confess that. <laughs> I lied about it. Yes, I was there. My children say, were you there, Daddy? Yes, look at that picture. See that picture with all those flash bulbs? I was right there, right there. I was lying through my teeth. I wasn't there. So in the future, my grandchildren asked, were you there, Grandpa, when Mark McGuire hit 62? I'd have to get out a schematic of Bush Stadium, and I'd have to go down in the bowels of the stadium in between Lowe's Reserve and the concession stand and say, yes, I was in the park, but I didn't see it. I was holding my peanuts <laughs> while everybody else saw him make history. You don't want to miss it. What is so important that you would miss it? Afraid of what other people will think? You really want to get before the throne of heaven and say, Lord, we did everything in that church and in our lives the same old boring way that it had always been done and nobody persecuted us for it. We flew under the radar. Or do you want to say, Lord, we gave everything we live full tilt. Sometimes we got our heads beaten in over it, but we were with you, praying and striving all the while 
for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And it's all been worth it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your love which is better than life and the privilege of being called your kings and priests to pray for mercy on this world. Oh Lord, we ask that you would use us in our prayers, in our words, in our lives to bring your kingdom to come on this earth as it is in heaven. Whatever the cost, give us the endurance to pursue it. That at that great day, we will have, we will have crowns to throw at your feet. And our hearts will swell with gratitude when we hear you say, well done. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. And God's people said together.